Father, we thank you for this time this morning, and as we continue discussing your word, but more how we've gotten your word, how we have what we have today, and the confidence that I believe we should definitely have in the in it and in the translation and versions we have. And so I pray that you would bless this time, Lord, give us understanding. And give us that confidence that when we read your word, we can believe we are reading your word. And that even though it was written in Greek and Hebrew and partly Aramaic, that we can have confidence in what we're reading in English. And so help us to understand how we've gotten to this point today with what we have. I know we've covered a lot of material. It's been a lot of information. But I pray just for your continued guidance and blessing during this time, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, good to see everyone. Alberta, you want to introduce Ray? Well, what about what he does for a living, or? Uh, how about you, Pedro? I'm still working on it right now. It pulls me hard, so I work mm-hmm. at Fred Meyer. Fred Meyer, okay. He does big games. Say what, Alberto? He does big games. Okay. All right, well, good to have you here, Ray. Good to have you here. Good. All right, we're going to back up just a little bit, do a little bit of review. We'll go through this somewhat quickly because we discussed it a few weeks ago, or actually last week. So I shared with you that there are primarily three translation methods or three approaches to translations, or you could say to versions of the Bible that we have. There's the uh, Textus Receptus, which is the basis for the King James and the basis for the New King James. And then the second approach is the, so if you have King James, you know, that was the approach or method that was taken with it, basing it off of the Textus Receptus, the work that Erasmus largely accomplished. And then second is the majority text. You guys remember we discussed the majority text and how does that work exactly? Does anyone remember? Largest number of documents. Yes, it's the democratic approach. It's voting. We have 500, 500 manuscripts that say this. We have 200 that say this. So if we're trying to determine if it's he or she or dog or cat, we're going to go with the one that has 500, that 500 says dog. Only 200 says cat, so it must be dog. You should... I think when I explain that, you probably immediately notice some concerns or issues with that, right? Just because something has been comp, uh, copied 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 times and something else has only been copied 100 or 200 times doesn't mean that it's most accurate or correct, right? There are other things that should be taken into consideration, and that's why there are no no versions, no translations today that are based off the majority text. So Textus Receptus, King James, based off that. The third approach is what's known as the critical or eclectic text. Again, I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, Let me just tell you the important things you need to know. It's called the critical text or critical approach because it takes a critical look at the manuscripts. A critical look at the manuscripts. If you look up here toward the bottom, second to last bullet, there are a number of factors that should be taken into consideration when we're looking at variance. The word variant is just a fancy word for difference. So when we're looking at a difference, when two manuscripts have a different word or a different phrase, what should be taken into consideration when evaluating those manuscripts and determining what is correct? What are certain things we would take into consideration? It's not a trick question. It's right up here. The age of the manuscripts, right? We have manuscripts from the 14th century that Erasmus used. We have manuscripts dating back to the 3rd and 4th century. The age of the manuscripts, in my mind, is a huge issue, a huge consideration. Also, the location of the manuscripts. And then the other really important issue, the possible explanation for the differences, the possible explanation for that variant. When we look at the context, can we see why a scribe might have added a word there? Why a scribe might have changed a word there because these two words look so similar. So even just looking at the original Greek or Hebrew and seeing that there's these two words, they're so similar, there's only a few pen stroke differences between them, that's why they might say this instead of that. Those are all good things to take into consideration. The critical or eclectic text, it relied heavily on the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex uh, Sinaiticus. And you remember we talked about that. Those were those two manuscripts that date back to the 3rd and 4th century as opposed to the manuscripts that Erasmus used primarily from the 13th and 14th century. The critical or eclectic text that's been largely recognized as the most accurate in duplicating the original text of Scripture, the original autographs. Um, The exception to that belief 
would be those who hold a greater confidence or loyalty in the King James because the King James doesn't use a critical text, doesn't use the eclectic. Oh, it's called critical and it's also called eclectic. Does anyone remember why it's called the eclectic text? Why else is it called eclectic text? Because it uses an eclectic or varied number of manuscripts, right? Whereas Erasmus or the Textus Receptus only used five or six largely similar Byzantine or Greek manuscripts. So the critical eclectic text looks at the text critically and uses an eclectic or varied number of manuscripts. This, this would be the basis for the modern translations, NIV, NASB, ESV. And later, we'll read it, reach it this morning, I'll explain why you see differences with those translations. Because one obvious question you could have is, if all of these modern translations are based off the same text, the critical or eclectic text, why do we see differences between them? And what's the simple answer to that? Differences regarding translation methods, right? Differences regarding approaches to translations. So just hold on to that. Critical or eclectic text, it has been revised many times with the discovery of new manuscript evidence, um, like, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's two critical texts that are in use today, and this is going to be important so you can understand certain acronyms in your Bible. There are two critical texts that are in use today by uh, modern Bible scholars. There's the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament, which is, and this is one point in my class where I decided not to take a side trail. You might read this and say, well, who's Nestle or who's Allen or what is Nestle and Allen, right? Nestle and Allen are the two individuals, and I'm going to refrain from discussing too much about them, but if you're interested, you can go and look, plenty of information about them. And the New Testament that they put together is in its 28th edition, and it's called N. I think that it's great that it's in its 28th edition. What that means is it's being continually um, revised or has been continually revised and improved as new manuscripts have been discovered or, or um, some scholars have even improved in some of their translation methods. Now, what you want to keep in mind is the Textus Receptus, the Greek New Testament, the Greek um, copy of the New Testament that Erasmus developed was largely unrivaled for about 250 years. For about 250 years, there was nothing really rivaling it. Then the Nestle Allen New, Greek New Testament, it's simply called N. It's simply called N. The other Greek New Testament in circulation today or used among scholars is called simply the Greek New Testament, and it's published by the UBS or the United Bible Societies, and it's identified as U. So you put these two together, you put the Nestle Allen Greek uh, N, and then you put the Greek New Testament U together and you get NU. So when you're reading your Bibles and you see that acronym toward the, in the footnotes where it says the NU says or the NU doesn't say, that's just a simple way of saying that the, that the critical or eclectic text does say this or doesn't say this. Now you're only going to see that in the King James and the New King James. You're not going to see the NU mentioned in the ESV or the NASB for what reason? Yes, those are based off the NU, right? The ESV, the NASB, the NIV are based off of the critical text or eclectic text. So they're going to say what the NU says. They don't need to say the NU says this or that. That is, they do say what the NU says. It's only the King James and New King James that differ from the NU. And when that takes place, the New King James, not the King James, the New King James will often point that out. And John Maddow had a great um, observation last week that I didn't know. He said, because... If the King James and the New King James are based off the same text, or they come from the same manuscripts, they're using the same evidence, there should not be a greater loyalty to the King James and the New King James because they're still using the same manuscripts. And I asked John, well, why do some people who are King James even have a problem with the New King James when the New King James is using the exact same manuscript evidence as the King James? And he said, because the New King James will have in the footnotes, you know, NU says this or NU says that. And they don't like that there's that possible question that's being implanted in people's minds. But we're going to see this morning that that's absolutely crucial because we know there is no question that there are some words, not a lot, but there are some words or phrases in the King James that we know are absolutely wrong. They're absolutely incorrect. They should say something else. There's no question, even among the most, even among the staunchest King James um, proponents, they will say that this should say this instead of this. And we'll see a few examples of that. 
That's why it's good that the New King James will say, NU says this. All right. Um, so it'll often say the NU, NU doesn't say, or oldest manuscripts don't include, or MSS is manuscripts omit this. We looked at this example last week. I'm not going to go back into it in detail, but John 5, 3, and 4. That highlighted or underlined portion right there, that underlined portion is not in the oldest manuscripts and what most scholars would consider the most reliable manuscripts, but it is in the King James, but it's not in the ESV or the modern translations. And so we had a good discussion last week. I was really impressed with everyone's observations about why this shouldn't be there or why it might be inserted, but I don't want to go through all that again. We've got some more examples this morning. Okay. John MacArthur, just a couple notes. Oh, the other one we looked at was um, Matthew 17, 20 to 21. Let me see if I put that on here. Okay, Matthew 17, 20 to 21. Remember, these are the verses where Jesus said it doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. These demons went, remember the disciples said, hey, how come we can't cast these demons out? And Jesus said, you know, these don't come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, most of the oldest, and I would argue most reliable manuscripts, do not include the word fasting. Now, here's the question. Is it likely that a scribe might add the word fasting or remove the word fasting? What would a scribe most likely do? Add. You're not going to probably take out the way fa- the word fasting, but a scribe possibly wanting to be helpful would say, well, the demon wouldn't come out by prayer. And who knows? Maybe in the little, maybe in the margin or something, he puts, he puts fasting and then later it's added. So that's just one example. The modern translations. Now, kind of keep this in mind. Let me ask you this. Are any important doctrines of the faith or is your Christian life dramatically affected by the inclusion or exclusion of the two words and fasting. No, it's not. Um, and that's the case with these variants, with these variants that we see now. To go back to PowerPoint. So it didn't say prayer and fasting? It said it doesn't go out by prayer. It doesn't go out by prayer. Some translations also add, or King James, excuse me, not some translations, add and fasting. Do you want me to leave it up here longer? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe it was, maybe, maybe they added prayer and fasting too. Maybe I was wrong. So. And it's the word prayer also the whole verse. Okay. Thank you, Chuck. Okay. I stand corrected. So it's not just the addition of and fasting, but prayer and fasting. So good. Thank you. The whole, all of verse 21. Thank you. All right, so here were just John MacArthur's comments on this. He said, the statement in the latter half of John 5, 3, quote, waiting for the moving of the water along with verse 4 are not original to the gospel. The earliest and best Greek manuscripts, as well as the early versions, exclude that reading. The presence of words or expressions unfamiliar to John's writings also militate against its, its, its inclusion. And if you, that might have sounded sort of wordy or techy, but just... Let me briefly explain something important that John said. God used men and their personalities and, and personal flavors or styles of writing in their writing. The words are divinely inspired down to every single last, like Jesus would say, jot or tittle, right? But Jesus, there's seats available up here. There's seats available up here in the corners. But Jesus did say, um, wait a second, what was I talking about? Oh, sorry, excuse me. So, but God used people's individual personality. So my point is, Peter wrote differently than Paul. John wrote differently than Luke. Isaiah wrote differently than Moses. So one thing scholars do that we don't notice as well or clearly in our English translations is they look at the words, the Greek words or Hebrew words that writers used. And let's say, for example, you look at all of John's gospel. And John 5, 4 is in question. You're wondering whether John 5, 4 should be in, should be used. And when you look at John 5, 4, you see that it uses some Greek words or a Greek word that John doesn't use anywhere else in his gospel. 
should that influence your view of that verse? Does that make sense? Yes, if John never used that word or that wording anywhere else in his gospel, and that's the only place, that might make you lean towards saying, well, that was probably added. John doesn't talk this way, and there are some good examples of that. Like the end of Mark. I'm probably not going to get into that, but the end of Mark's gospel, one of the reasons we can, or are largely confident that that shouldn't be there, is it uses some words that are not used any place else in Mark's gospel. And so that's uh, significant. All right, Matthew 17, 21. So yeah, I was definitely wrong. It's all of verse 21. John MacArthur said Matthew 17, 21 is not found in the best manuscripts. It's, sim- it's the parallel account in Mark 9, 29. The earliest manuscripts omit the word fasting in Mark 29, 9, 29, excuse me. All right. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Okay. A concise response to that. Okay. One of the one of the big criticisms, and maybe you've seen this. One of the things social media does is it gives us um, availability to a lot of other people's opinions, right? Let me just say it like that. And perhaps you've seen it on Facebook. The common criticism from those, or one of the common criticisms from those whose loyalty is to the King James is all of these modern translations take out these verses. For example, the mo- a modern translation will take out John 5.4. Now, that can be a criticism or it can be a commendation. It's a criticism if John 5.4 should be there. It is a commendation if John 5.4 should not be there. Does that make sense? And so, when if you see a King James, a person whose loyalty is to the King James make that criticism, and then you go to your Bible and you're like, Man, my Bible is missing this verse. Well, you need to you need to evaluate that somewhat critically and ask, well, was that really supposed to be there? As we go through this, I don't know if I can answer that that concisely in two two minutes, okay? But I want to go through some stuff that would help you if you were going to respond to someone. Scribes. Oh, Aaron. Yes, that was a short, concise answer, Aaron. <laughs> but when that person says, well, how do you know they added it or something like that, then what would you say? Okay. <laughs> you would say, this is what you say. You say, there's some Sunday school classes on our church website that my pastor, they are going to be on there pretty quickly. I didn't know these classes were recorded. Or I would have told you that earlier. I just found out this morning they're recorded. So we'll put them on there. Now, scribes were careful, but they made mistakes. They might have put in a wrong word. They might have spelled something incorrectly. And what's interesting, the same can happen with English, but I'm seeing how it happens uh, more commonly with Greek. When a scribe misspells a word or writes a word incorrectly, it could actually then become a different word, right? And so that's what you see. We'll look at one example of that this morning. They might leave something out. They might occasionally try to clarify something. Wendy, nice and lovely. Yes. So this is new to me. Like, nope. I've always been told that, like, they had to burn everything yes. yes. And so you're presenting a very different Yes. Yes. Like, because that's kind of how we can defend Yes. Church, right? This is great what you're saying. Okay. Do you want to... I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to respond. Like, like, okay. This is what Wendy said. This is what Wendy said. She said she's always been taught that scribes took a tremendous amount of care with their, with their, when they were um, copying, right? Now, you remember a few Sundays ago, I hope that I stressed that, right? We talked about individuals. We talked about scribes who wrote a letter, went and washed or cleansed themselves, and then came back and wrote another letter, right? And they would, trans, they would copy the entire Old Testament that way, the entire law. And we talked about how when mistakes were found, they would burn an entire copy, or that entire copy, everything they'd had up to that point. There are other approaches they took. I don't think I mentioned this before. But they would copy a page, and then what they would do is they would count the letters, find the very middle letter on that page, and then look at the middle letter on the one they're copying from. And if that letter is different, then what would they do with that manuscript? they destroy it. they would burn it, or, or some, bur- some buried it. And so they did. They took tremendous care. They took immense care. But sometimes they still made mistakes. There were still mistakes. Now, some of the mistakes were 
ones they never intended. They might have written something in a margin. And a subsequent scribe or a later scribe might have inserted that or moved that. They might have, they might have written something correctly. And what might happen with the leg of that letter over time? What could happen with the leg of that letter? Just wears off, you know, or we're not talking about, you know, um, word processors here where these things are stored on hard drives. And so over time, things could happen with manuscripts where it made certain things, uh, Maybe unreadable, but at least more difficult to read. And my point is Erasmus was only using five to six Greek manuscripts. That's not a huge sample to consider. And when he was using those Greek manuscripts, it's not like they were all complete copies of the entire New Testament. He was trying to take what he had to put together a New Testament. And then when he had that compiled, because remember, he was racing against the clock. He sent that off. He sent that off then. Um, Amanda? Yes. 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 So we have approximately 10,000 Old Testament manuscripts, 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. So here's the great thing. A scribe made a mistake, or when a scribe made a mistake, but we can tell. We can tell. Um, and that's what I want you to just stay with me about. Hold on to that. Generally, scribes tended to add and not subtract. Regarding the mistakes, no doctrine of the Christian faith is affected. They're very minor, like I said, um, you know, is it angels, is it holy angels, or just angels? The questions, you say, well, how many questions are there? To give you an idea here, we're looking at about one-tenth of a percent of the verses. We're looking at one page out of a thousand. One page. If you took 1,000 pages, we have about one page worth of questionable material. We have so many manuscripts, we can identify very easily, I believe, very easily when there's a mistake, when there is an addition. So if, if something shows up in a later manuscript, but it was not in an earlier one, then we can tell that it was added. If something shows up in a later manuscript, but it was not in an earlier one, we know that it was added. Now that's where you're going to have to make a decision for yourselves regarding your view of the King James. Because Erasmus was using those newer manuscripts from the 12th and 13th century, when the older manuscripts were discovered, older I don't mean, um, I mean like to the 3rd and 4th century, and there were differences there, you have to decide whether you trust that work Erasmus had accomplished with those newer manuscripts or you have more confidence in those older ones. Now let me show you how some of these mistakes could take place. Let me just show you a few examples. And there's a lot of examples I could show you, but I want to value your time. So we're just going to look at a few. Matthew, and I'm choosing this verse because it's it's well known. Matthew 19, 24, Mark 10, 25, and Luke 18, 18, 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a two-stroke difference in the Greek between camel and rope. A two-stroke difference between camel and rope. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a needle. We're talking about thread. And it's minor. Like I say needle, and we sort of think um, of like a real small needle. But a needle could also refer to something really large, a larger needle that you might use if you were perhaps sewing something that required larger thread, like perhaps the sail of a ship or something. And so when you had a larger needle like that, it's not just a thread that would go through it. What else would go through it? A rope, something we would consider like a rope, Okay. So two-stroke difference between camel or rope in this discussion of needles. The Greek and Aramaic words. In Greek, camel, depending on the translation, is that word camelon or camelos. Okay? In Greek, the word rope is camelon. And in Greek, the word cable is camelos. Now, can you see the strong similarity between camel and rope, even in the Greek, or cable? Or another word that could easily be swapped there for camel. Now in Aramaic, gamla, it has a double meaning. And it can mean rope or it can mean camel because ropes were made from camel's hair because it was large and thick. So that makes it even possibly more confusing. But what we can do is we can, well, we have two choices. We can be textual critics ourselves and say, what should this say? 
or we can trust individuals who are textual critics to see what they have said. So let's say you have two manuscripts. One manuscript says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Another manuscript says it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. Now you've got to make this decision. Let's say you're developing or you're working on a modern translation. Which one is it? We know that it's camel because of the context. For one, the context. And that's why I think the critical or eclectic text is so important. The critical or eclectic text takes that critical look where context is considered. Um, and Jesus is talking about something that would be impossible. Now, is it impossible for a thread to go through the eye of a needle? No, but is it impossible for a camel, right? Okay, Kitty? Okay. We know it's Campbell because Jesus is talking about something that's difficult or impossible. And if he said, and if he's talking about putting a rope through the eye of a needle, that's not a difficult thing. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Good thing you're not a textual critic. That's what my wife said. Okay, so the context. It's impossible to put a camel through the eye, but it's possible to put a rope through the eye. So here's what you need to know. Someone might turn camel into cord, but probably not cord into camel. In other words, nobody's going to look at cord and say that that should be camel, but someone could look at camel, and this is perhaps what my wife was just saying. She would do, they could look at camel and say, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. A camel doesn't go through the eye of a needle. That should be cord instead. Let's write cord. It's so close that there must just be some mistake there, and it should say cord. Any questions or thoughts before we look at another example? John, nice and lovely. No. Okay, so this is just a... This is a, a hypothetical situation. But if you go on the internet, which which I did for this, you can see there are a lot of people today who think that it should be court for these reasons. So no, we don't have any, at least that I know of, credible or reliable translations that says, but you can go on the internet and there's a lot of people out there who think it should be cord or rope instead of camel. Lots of arguments about it. Wendy? That makes sense <clears throat> Sure. Okay, so this is what Wendy said. She said, if I'm understanding you, you can see why someone would would suspect cord because it might be hard to get it through there, but it's not impossible. It's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, but it's not impossible. Good. Amanda? Yes. Yes. Yeah, be unloaded of all their possessions. Yes. Yes, I've heard that. I think we've all heard that, right, that there's a gate call, and, you know, for the camels, they had to be unloaded of all their possessions. Um, I've heard that's true. I've heard that's not true. I've heard that there was no gate with that name. But this is what I would say. Whether there's a gate with that name or not, can you tell what Jesus is saying to rich people and getting into heaven, right? So that's my point. Sometimes we'll, um, and I struggle with this because I tend to be more exhaustive. And when I stand behind the pulpit and talk to you guys, I want to know exactly what that verse says. And there's even sometimes where I feel like I didn't use your time as profitably as I could, where I worked out these very minor details that you didn't need to know, okay? And probably bored you. And I, I think I've improved some, although I'm definitely not as good as I should be in this area. Generally, going over my sermon with Katie, she'll say, they don't need 30, wor- 30 minutes of their time being used to explain the gate of that city in Jer- on Jerusalem, right? And the wall there. And so I've tried to improve that way, but the point, but the reason I don't think it's terribly profitable for you is whether that gate is there or not, you absolutely understand what Jesus is saying. It's, you can tell the warning that's there for rich people. Okay, or for loving riches might even be a better way to say it. Okay, another example. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is his, depending if it's uh, which translation you're using, it might be capitalized or not. And all the angels or holy angels are with him. The King James and the New King James says holy angels. The modern translations, NASV, ESV, NIV, and NLT say angels. Now holy is in the um, younger manuscripts that Erasmus used from the 13th and 14th centuries, but holy is not in the older manuscripts that Nestle Allen used, Nestle and Allen used for the NU. So there's two possibilities. Two possibilities. Holy, we can tell what are the two possibilities. Holy should be there or not be there, right? It should be there or it shouldn't be there. It was what Levi, or it was what Matthew originally wrote, or it wasn't. It's what God, 
inspired him to divinely write or it's not. So holy is an original, should be included. Nestle Allen decided to remove it. That's one possibility. Nestle Allen decided to remove it when they were developing the NU. Or holy is not in the original writing and a helpful scribe thought the word holy should be added because he knows there's two types of angels. I think it's more reasonable to conclude that a scribe wanting to be helpful added the word holy to differentiate or distinguish between holy and unholy angels, or we would say angels and demons. And with that said, that's not the only consideration. It's not like I I come to that conclusion or make that assumption just based on um, what I would do if, if I was in, or what I would think about that situation. We also have those older manuscripts from the third and fourth century that don't say that. Those older manuscripts don't have the word holy. So all of these factors in my mind, would play into determining whether the word holy should be there or not. Um, Patrick, nice and lolly, please. Yes. 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 Okay. Okay, good. Great. Yes, well said. Well, I I said earlier what I think. I think that the common um, mistakes seem to be adding. But if you disagree with that, which would be absolutely fine, go ahead and share why you would. Well, I, I, just, I just put that as a counter. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, what, what would you say to someone who says scribes would not, or um, why, why do you think a scribe might subtract or remove in his work? Okay. Okay. Sure. So I'll just submit to you. I want to be absolutely clear. I'm sharing my opinion on this with some amount of studying. Um, I'm lean a lot more towards scribes adding. I see that being a, a more common mistake that can be made because they perhaps want to clarify. They might think that an at, a word is missing and insert it there. It perhaps didn't look like it should make you know would make as much sense as they thought, and they might add. Or like I said, they might have. There might have been a scribe previously who did not mean to add to God's word, and that later scribe ended up inserting something or moving something from the margin, or or I don't know if they crossed each other's work out and added over. But it's hard for me to imagine a scribe subtracting, looking at God's word, who he believes is ha, has this precious value. We can't even imagine what's going through his mind at that time. It's hard for me to imagine that scribe would look at God's word and say, "You know what? I don't like this. I'm going to take it out." I just don't like this. I'm going to subtract it. Aaron? Yes. 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 Right. Yes. You're right. Yep. Because these individuals were dealing with manuscripts that, um, you know, they're trying to compile. They might put their own notes on it, thinking that it's not going to go forward to actual be, actually be the manuscript. This is just what they're sending that someone will produce from that. Yeah, and they do have their own a lot of their own notes on that. Good. Okay, if you want to turn to Second Samuel 8, we'll look at this in a little more detail. I mentioned it. Mentioned it a few weeks ago. But I want to look at it in more detail here. Okay. You need to know that Aram and Syria are the same. Aram and Syria are the same. You need to know that for this discussion here. 
So, because some of your Bibles might say Aram and some Bibles might say Syria, and you need to know that they're the same. Now, in the King James and the New King James and the NAS, it reads Aram or Syria. In the ESV, the NIV, and the NLT, it reads Edom. Now, if you look up here for a moment and look at the Hebrew word for Edom, you've got three Hebrew letters, Mem, Dalet, and Aleph. In English, this would be an M, a D, and Aleph is silent. Now, Aram in Hebrew is Mem, Resh, Aleph. And again, that in English, that's the letter M, R, and then again, Aleph is silent. Now, if you just look at how these two words, these two names or places are written in Hebrew, look at the Hebrew letters. Do you see much difference between them? They're almost identical. They almost look like the exact same word. The only difference between them is the middle letter, Dalit, and look at the similarity between Dalit and Resh. To us, it almost kind of looks like a seven, right? It almost looks like a seven. The Dal- Now, there's vowel pointings. I'll, I'll tell you this brief. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I, I took some Hebrew in seminary. This is one of the few things I remember about it. Because Hebrew didn't have vowels, to read it in English, you had to insert vowels. And so they would... they put what's called vowel pointings. And so you see those dots, and those dots are the vowel pointings. And it tells you the vowels to insert there. And that's why um, you say, is it Yahweh or Jehovah? Or is it Yehovah? Well, it's those four letters, Y-H-W-H, and when you insert vowels in there, you can get, depending on the vowels you use, Yahweh or Jehovah, right? But it's just those four letters that are taken from God saying, my name is in Exodus, I think it's 3.14, I am who I am. When you take those Hebrew letters and then you insert the English vowels, you can get Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah. Now, if you look here at that middle letter, Dalit or Resh, you see that you've just got this one dot above it, or you've got that little line underneath it. And that's the only difference between Edom and Aram. So can you see how a scribe might make this mistake? You do, right? I hope you do, right? You guys said I don't see a lot of heads nodding. Now, biblical support, now here's the thing. So you say, okay, well, what are we going to do? We don't know if it's Edom or we don't know if it's Syria. The context makes it absolutely clear. There's no question whatsoever that it's supposed to be Edom instead of Syria or Aram. Psalm 60 is about this battle. And the title says, Joab returned and he killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. You can tell that the chapter is about, um, about Joab fighting Edomites. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 8.12 says, Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed, and this is um, Joab's brother, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So the parallel account in Chronicles, or that means when Chronicles tells this same story or records this same account, it says Edom. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because remember when Greek became the prevalent language of the day, and people needed to be able to read the Hebrew Old Testament. They translated it into Greek. That Greek translation is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint says Edom. So the solution. A scribe probably made an error since there's only one letter difference. And it's not even really a letter difference. It's more like a dot difference between Edom and Aram. But here's the thing. The King James, it says the wrong. There's no. One second, I'll show you. Okay. Um, here you've got the five translations or versions that we looked at previously. You've got King James on the left, and then moving across, New King James, NASB, ESV, and NIV. Now, we know that it should be Edom. There's no question that it's talking about Edom. If you read it in the King James, there's no footnote saying that it should be, um, that it's wrong, basically. Now, in the other translations, including even the New King James, so this is why between the King James and New King James, if your affection or loyalty is to the manuscripts that Erasmus used, I would still encourage you to use the New King James because at least it has these footnotes. You can still have the same manuscript loyalty. That's what this is about. It's a discussion or argument of of manuscripts. You still have the same manuscript loyalty, But you'll have these footnotes that can identify when there was a mistake. Um, 
So in the New King James, it tells you right here that Syrium, or Syrium, excuse me, Syria should be Edom. And again in verse 13, David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. You've got the second footnote that says that it should be the Edomites. And it tells you to compare with Chronicles, the parallel account in Chronicles. Um, in the NASB and the other modern, modern translations, you've got Aram, um, Edom, Edom. But the, remember I said the NASB also says Aram. But when you go down to the bottom, these other translations are also going to let you know, like the NASB says that it should be Edom. And then these, and then you just have a note of, actually the ESV doesn't even make a note, it looks like. But the NIV does. All right? Yes, nice and lovely, Jake. Yes, they did. It's the yes. It's it's written as uh, in verse twelve and thirteen as Syria or Syria or Aram instead of Edom. Yes, Kathy. What is that? Is that New King James? Okay. It says, it says, is it read, written like up here? It says Syria? Okay. Some manuscripts say, okay. Yeah. Yes. Shannon? Where does it say the location is of Edom? Um, uh, I'm not sure. The Hebrew Old Testament is called the Ta- Tanakh. I, where's Aaron? Tanakh? Tanakh? Do you know? Oh, that's beyond you. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Tanakh, and I'm not exactly sure what it says. So sorry about that. Amanda? Okay. Any other questions on this before I move from this screen? Great. Because there was great question, Jack. So this is Jack's question. If we know it should be Edom, and we know Aram or Syria is wrong, why does it even say Aram or Syria? And that's the that's the question, Jack. Often, I believe, when scribes... Now, if you've ever if you've ever um, acted sort of as a scribe in copying something, what are you focused on and what are you not focused on? You're focused on looking at that and writing it here. You are not focused on reading and context and understanding, right? You're just focused on making sure that you, as accurately as possible, reproduce this to this. So the scribe probably did not have the benefit of considering context, um, I think that now what exactly happened, I can't, I can't say for sure, Jack, but at some point there was a scribe who just either copied it wrong, who copied it wrong, or in his copying, he, the actual word he wrote correctly and maybe it just sort of wore off a little bit. Maybe, maybe there was a smudge. I don't know. I mean, they were, they were writing with an ink that could, could smudge possibly. There's any number of reasons, but the good thing is we can tell when there's a mistake. We can tell. There's no question. Like I said, the entire New Testament, except for like one or two verses, can be completely reproduced just from the writings of the church fathers. The early church fathers, the massive amounts that they wrote, you can use that to accurately reproduce the entire New Testament. So we can see what it should say when there's any question. But one reason, and I don't know anyone here like this, so to be clear... And I've spent some time talking with some individuals in our church about this. I don't, there's nobody in our church that I know of who is King James only. I don't, I have, I've met some people who have an affection for the King James. And I would say I have an affection for the King James. I don't want anyone to leave and think I, 
It's not like I think the King James is bad. I don't think that at all. I think it's wonderful. I think God has used it powerfully. I think dramatic revivals have taken place through it. Countless people have been saved from it. If you are on an island and and you didn't have a Bible and the King James fell out of the sky, you could use it and be blessed the rest of your life, right? I'm thankful for the King James. I'm thankful for Erasmus's work. I just think for two reasons, I have a I I'm, a, I'm fond of these newer translations. One, readability which we'll talk about a little more. And I think they're more accurate in some places than the King James. And this is just one example. There's no question the King James is wrong here. Now, if you, if you have, if you say King James only, and that's all there is, well, even then that begs some questions. Which King James? Which King James is the absolute or correct one? Was it the first revision? Was it the second revision? Third revision? Fourth revision? Fifth revision? 100 years later? Which one is it? What did people have before the King James? If, if it's King James only and that's all there is, for 1,500 years, did people not have the word of God? And so we just, I really want us to walk away from here um, not under that belief that there's only King James. And so far, the people I've spoken to in our church, nobody's had that, been of that persuasion. Any questions or thoughts? Okay. Translation methods. There's... Primarily two translation methods. This is going to be very important. This is very important. There's what's known as formal equivalence. Formal equivalence, when you hear that, you just want to think word for word. Word for word. Examples of this would be King James, New King James, and NASB. They strive to take the Hebrew or Greek words and to translate them into the closest corresponding English words. And then the other translation approach is dynamic equivalence. This is thought for thought. The examples, extreme examples, would be the Living Bible and the Message, and then not as extreme as those, but still somewhat extreme, is the NIV. They strive to take not the original word or the original language, but the original thought of the writer and reproduce that. Or they would, or they would say the original thought God had. They wouldn't say the original thought the writer had. The original thought God had in God's mind and express that thought in English because that's what's going to be best for the readers to get the thought that God intended. Now, I'm suspecting while I'm saying this, discussing dynamic equivalence, you might be starting to develop some concerns, right? Okay, that's good. That's good. Perfect. Okay. Every translation, I I bet you have a lot of questions here and I, I hope I'll get to them. But just to tell you briefly, every translation or version is on this spectrum between formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Because no, even the King James is not a, a complete or absolute formal equivalence for a number of reasons that we're going to discuss. You can't always get a word, one, uh, a word for word translation. And you can't, even if you got a word for word translation, even if there was a comparable English word for every Hebrew or Greek word, you couldn't put those words in the same order or it wouldn't make any sense. And we have verbs, conjunctions, linking words in our English language that are necessary for our language to make sense. So nothing can be a uh, literal formal equivalence, and it shouldn't be. Or you would look at something you'd never be able to read. So the question is, where should we be on the spectrum? And that's what I hope to teach you. Now, translation is a science... But it definitely is not an exact science. Wow, that was a big bullet there. Okay, I didn't mean to reveal that much to you all at once. So so be disciplined and just stay with me as I go through this, okay? You're not supposed to see this much. <laughs> okay, it is very naive to think, and to let you know, nobody really thinks this. So I'm not criticizing anyone. But it would be very naive to think that in translating from one language to another, that you could achieve a very rigid word-for-word translation. There are not always comparable words. Even in trying to accomplish a word-for-word translation, you can't always or even often take a single word in English and translate to a single Hebrew or Greek word. Sometimes you need two or three English words, or sometimes you can take two or three Hebrew or Greek words and actually use one English word. So it could require two to three English words to translate a Hebrew or Greek word, or you could translate two or three Hebrew or Greek words with one English word. With one English word. Languages, they work differently regarding the way the words work together, regarding the way sentences flow, the way um, words require different orders in them. It was interesting when I was learning French in high school, probably the second best language after English. That was just a joke. I, it was just a joke. 
Okay, nobody laughed, though. So, uh, okay, although I think it's a kind of a beautiful-sounding language, we don't have a discussion about French, never mind. All right, okay, so I was taking French in English, and I, or I was taking French in high school, and I entered the class fairly naively, and I was under the impression that, you know, I would just learn these words in French, and then I would just, you know, kind of speak them in English. And any of you who've learned another language know that it just doesn't work that easily. Not only do you have to learn the comparable words, you also have to learn how to say those words correctly or appropriately, right, in a sentence, stringing them together. You've probably noticed sometimes when you're speaking to people who don't know English very well, they're doing their best effort, but you'll hear them say words that are sort of out of order, or you'll think it'd be better if they said this instead, right? Well, all of that plays into translations as they try to take these languages. So it's not an exact science. All right, any questions or thoughts? Deborah, nice and loudly. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, you, Deborah, you said, Deborah said something interesting. I hate to disagree with you a little bit, but, uh, Deborah said something interesting. I want you to hear what she said. It was a very astute observation. She was saying, if I understood her correctly, there could be an idiom in another language. Now, an idiom is something you don't, like I, when I taught fourth grade, you know, you explain this to your students. An idiom is something that does not make sense in its literal sense, right? It just doesn't make sense. You have to have a familiarity with the vernacular for an idiom to make sense. So here is a great question. When there's a Hebrew or Greek idiom, and there are some, is it better to translate that idiom using Hebrew or Greek and allow other readers or English readers to learn the idioms of the day, or is it better to take those words and change them to communicate the thought? I would argue to leave them. I would argue to leave them. Leave them. Because I would argue we should develop, because the, the translation or version, I think this is very important, should be as close as possible to the original language or original words used by God himself. It is not our place to look and say, okay, well, this is what they meant, so let me tell these people what it means. Our responsibility is to stay faithful to that original language as best as possible and then allow the subsequent readers to develop some familiarity, to develop some familiarity. Now, I like, I I bet for all of you who have been reading the Bible 10, 20, 30 years you have a familiarity with Jewish culture or, or you know, um, the ancient world now because of your time spent studying God's word. And I don't think that, the, I think those idioms should be translated literally for us to develop that familiarity, okay? All right. Um, and I'll, sh- I'll uh, and, or Ethan, nice and loudly, please. Okay, Ethan shared, and we've, you've probably seen this. It seems to happen a lot in Proverbs. I've noticed it in Proverbs or Psalms, where it'll say the original meaning is not clear. We don't know what the, what the original meaning of that is. Yeah, and so you're saying that's often when there was a, an idiom? Okay, thank you, Ethan. Good. Thank you. Okay, um, Vicki? Okay. Yes. I read when you first started out, but by the time you read a whole book that was written in the 1800s, you're kind of able to flow of it. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. 
Yes. Good observation. Let me say something about that. Let me back up. I forgot to say something, and we'll we'll be finishing soon. I just want you to stay with me for a couple minutes here. First, often when translations are produced for um, you know an indigenous people or the people who live there in that area, what do they often do with that translation or version when they get it? They actually change it because they look at it and say, "Some white guy wrote this." We can tell some white guy wrote this. We don't talk like this. This sounds very clunky. And so they will make adjustments so that it can read understandably. Now, this is what Vicky said. And correct me if I misinterpret you, misinterpret you, misrepresent you. Vicky said this is one reason she has generally liked the King James because uh, we should read it in that original language. But this is my big objection to that. Thou is not in the original language. Thy is not in the original language. V is not in the original language. So we're not, by reading King James, we're not reading the original language. The original language said you. The translators of that day said thee or thou or thy. And that's a really big difference. Because I don't want you to think that when the, when the King James used archaic language, or what we would consider archaic language, that that's more faithful to the original language that was used. That's just more faithful to the language of what? That day. And that is a world of difference. That is a world of difference. I am committed to sticking to the words that are closer or more faithful to those of the original day, like propitiation, justification. I will discourage you, and we'll talk about this. I would discourage you from using any any translations that avoid words like propitiation, NIV being one of them. But just understand, the archaic language that King James uses, that's not more faithful to what Moses or Paul wrote. Moses and Paul didn't say, thee, thy, or thou. They didn't say, super, fur, Okay, okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, well said, I agree with this. Yes. Yes. Yep. Well said. I agree. Yes. 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 Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. This is what Vicky said, and I absolutely agree with this. I cannot say this any better than what Vicky said. This let me tell you something that's not a good criticism of the King James. Here's a terrible criticism of the King James. It's hard to read. Okay? If something's hard to read and it's more accurate, we should use it. Amen? Right? No if it's hard to read but it's more accurate, we should use it. So my difficulty with the King James has nothing to do with whether it's difficult to read. I just think there are some modern translations that are more accurate. And that's what I'm looking at. That's what I think is very important. We don't want to shy away from something just because it's harder to read. That's abs- just like Vicky said, that's absolutely lazy. And I'm, well, we'll get, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We'll talk more about this next week. Please make sure you keep coming back, okay? Any questions or thoughts before we close? Yes, Brian? What? Yes. Now, that's why I'm saying if you happen to like the textual basis for the King James, then the new King James is a nice, um, is somewhere in the middle there, or a nice compromise where you're getting that same loyalty to those manuscripts, but without the, the language of the 1600s. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. Let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time this morning. We're continuing to work through these things. I think they're so important, Lord. Sometimes I feel like it's the elephant in the room. When we're reading our Bibles, we see these footnotes, and it says, you know, the NU or these older manuscripts don't say this or they do say this. And it creates these questions, nagging questions in our minds about the confidence we can have in your word 
And we sometimes we almost don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend like it's not there. And I think that's tragic because we should have confidence in your word, Lord. We should understand why those footnotes are there. And I pray that over these weeks, I pray we're developing this understanding why they're there. I pray that you would continue building our confidence um, in your word and in the confidence we can have that when a scribe made a mistake or when two manuscripts said different things, that we can tell that. We know that. And that we know what your word should say. And so I do thank you for your word, the way that you have preserved it, the just great, faithful, accurate translations that you've given us today. I think especially about the ESV, the NASV. Um, I thank you for the new King James, Lord. I thank you for the work that you did, have done through the King James and through Erasmus. We thank you for your word, Father. Pray that you go with us now into this time of worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.